For our meditation and preparation for communion on this night, I'll invite you to a familiar story. It might seem like it's in a bit of the wrong, a wrong setting, but I think if you stick with me, we'll get there. If you worship here regularly, you, you, you probably know that one of the things that I'm particularly interested in in the Bible are the parables of Jesus. How Jesus taught in such an interesting and unique way through his stories. These stories are the details of which are very ordinary for his culture, right? They're about seeds and about sheep and about kings and about vineyards and ordinary kinds of things, and yet they're so otherworldly as Jesus uses parables as vehicles to shock his audience, to help them hear something profound about the kingdom of God and about the true nature of reality in God's world. Parables are subversive, Right? They sneak in the back door of your mind. They don't, they don't tell it to you straight. You have to think about it. You have to ponder it. You have to consider it. And if you do so, then I think you'll be changed and we'll learn something. And this evening, I want to invite us into another way of seeing the world for just a few minutes. I don't know if you feel this way. I feel like I need a break from the news around me, news about terror and war and about heartache and tragedy, news about selfishness and greed, news about falsehood and spin, all of those kinds of, all of that kind of news that inundates us all the time. But I'm not inviting you to a make-believe world. I'm not inviting you to a world where we close our eyes and pretend that those things aren't real. The invitation, instead, is to see that there's a solution that exists to all of those problems which lies Behind them and beyond them, behind the brokenness of the world, beyond the brokenness of the world, there's a solution, and that solution is connected with Christmas. And that solution is connected to the promise, as one writer puts it that I like so well. He says, far more can be mended than you know. As we think about our world, I think that's a great way as a Christian to think about it. Far more can be mended then you know. Perhaps the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is the most famous of Jesus' parables. I think, I think it's my favorite. The story, of course, has been adapted and re- retold and reinterpreted by Christians and non-Christians in literature and film for centuries because it's such a beautiful story of redemption. It's a picture of good coming out of bad, and there are riches here in these words that have been fodder for poets and writers for centuries. And there's a Christmas connection for us to see tonight. So if you want to follow along, we'll be in Luke 15. It's on page 740 if you're using the Pew Bible. We'll read a short section of it in a little bit. Of course, we can't do the whole thing tonight. But before we get into it again, let me, let me pray. Father, we are thankful this night for the opportunity to look into your word, and we're thankful that you have given it to us. And Jesus, we thank you for the way that you taught, that you taught in such a way that changes us. And we pray that you would teach us in that way tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may know, of course, the story of the parable. Some of you may not. It's in Luke 15, and Jesus tells actually three parables in this chapter about lost things that are being found. One sheep out of a hundred, one coin out of ten, 
and one son out of two with an open ending. In the context, as Luke tells us in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is illustrating that sinners who are gathering around him, sinners, tax collectors, bad people, irreligious people, right? Those people who are gathering around him are being found. And the religious leaders of the day, the upright and self-righteous people, are standing back and they're criticizing Jesus for associating with those people and they're not admitting that they need any help or that they're lost. And so Jesus tells this series of parables. The parable of the prodigal son, of course, begins with this idea that there's a man, he has two sons. We soon see that both of these sons have a broken relationship with their father, but in two opposite and very different ways. The older son is very dutiful. He's unloving towards his father and towards his younger brother. He demonstrates outward conformity as a son, right? He follows all the rules. According to him, at least, in verse 29, he's never, ever disobeyed. He does everything right before his father. And yet we see as the parable goes along that inwardly he's rebellious and he's joyless and he's critical and he's self-righteous. So Jesus is making a very clear and plain teaching here that the older son symbolizes those religious leaders who are standing back and criticizing him for associating with the sinners. The younger son, of course, famously rebels outwardly. He demands his inheritance, which means that he wishes his father were dead. By the way, no father would actually give his son his inheritance. If he wanted it, they would probably beat him up and throw him out of the house for even suggesting it. But this father does, which is one of Jesus' shocking details that we'll explore. By his request, his younger son has broken his father's heart. He's ripped apart his family and their property. He's turned his back on his village. He's brought shame upon himself and upon his whole clan. He thinks independence is the key to happiness. He thinks that he's better off without his father and his family, and so he leaves. And things are okay for a while, right? He has a lot of money, and he uses it to live extravagantly and expensively, and as money does, it runs out. And he hits rock bottom, hungry, desperate, destitute. He's feeding pigs. That's the job that no Jewish boy in the first century would ever, ever do. Ever. We'll pick up the story there in verse 17. It says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Here at the lowest point, the prodigal son has an idea how to solve his hunger problem. His words here are a window into his heart. His little soliloquy, he, he, his plan, right, is to go home and ask to be a servant of his father. And he re- rehearses his little speech to that effect. I thought for many years that this was a speech of true repentance, but I don't think that's actually the case. I think he had regret. Obviously, things didn't turn out well. Perhaps he's learned a lesson But I don't think that he really understands. I don't think he's really returning in order to repent. I don't think he's really returning because he's broken his father's heart and he knows it and he's sorry. I think the text gives us the hint, and there are a number of other reasons we don't have time to go into tonight, but I think the text gives us the hint that his true motivation is hunger. In verse 17, that's what he's really driving the younger son. But he has a big problem. And that's, of course, how Christmas fits into the story. In order to survive and not starve, the son must return to his father, his family, and the village that he so shamefully rejected. The only way that he can survive is to be humiliated and grovel before his people. He has absolutely no other options available to him. Verse 16 says, no one will give him anything. Jesus' audience would have known instinctively in hearing this story for the first time, they would have known instinctively what would greet the prodigal son as he returned to his village. It would likely be something like this. I'll paint the, try to paint the picture for you. This is what Jesus' audience would have expected to have happened. This is the way they think the story would go, right? As the son approaches the village, someone will notice him. Perhaps one of the kids who is playing in the streets. And the news will immediately spread to everyone in the village. And a crowd will gather to see the son returning home in his pitiful state. They'll find out that he's lost everything among the Gentiles. And crowds like this in a village can be very cruel. The kids will probably dance around him and taunt him. Perhaps people will insult him openly or even throw things at him or hit him. He has shamed his family and he has shamed the whole village. And he will have to walk all the way from the edge of the village all the way to his family's home. And likely his mother would be compassionate and give him some food. But there would be no expectation that his father would greet him would receive him or even look at him. The father might make him wait for days or even weeks before acknowledging his return and even speaking to him. And the prodigal has calculated that all of this humiliation is better than starvation. And he has a speech ready that he can beg for enough mercy to live and then to begin to pay off his debt probably never expecting to be received back into his house as a son again. This is probably what Jesus' audience thought would happen. 
And so how amazingly different is the welcome that the prodigal receives. In verse 20 it says, He went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's not his whole speech, is it? But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Every detail that happens is shocking. It's not shocking to us if we've heard the story before. Instead of making the son walk the gauntlet through the village, his father runs out to him while he's still far away at the edge of town. And if you know anything about older men in that culture, they never ran. They didn't wear pants. Pants were invented by the Persians centuries later because they had to ride horses, right? Nobody wore pants. And it would be very humiliating to run and you're not wearing pants, right? You have to lift up your robe in order to run in this way that shows your legs to people. It's completely undignified. No father would ever do that. But he, but he does. And he embraces his filthy son, his son who's been hanging out with the pigs. And he kisses him. And this, I think, is where the son truly repents because he doesn't finish his speech. He doesn't ask to be made into a servant because he sees shockingly that his father is receiving him back as a son. That the love of his father has melted his heart and crushed his plans of earning his way back into the family. The robe and the ring and the sandals all symbolize the honor of the father and the family being bestowed again on this son. There's no work left to be done to get back into the family. In the father's own words, the feast is a celebration of what? It's a celebration of a resurrection. My dead son is alive again. My lost son, like the lost sheep, like the lost coin, my lost son is found and restored. And later in the story, against the older son, the father again will defend his joy in achieving this reconciliation with his younger son. He will say, it is fitting, it is right that we had to celebrate and be glad. Jesus told parables for lots of different reasons. As I mentioned, according to the first two verses of the chapter, Jesus told these three parables partly to illustrate how sinners and tax collectors are being found in the same way that a man finds his lost sheep and a woman finds her lost coin and a father finds his lost son. All of the finders go out. They work hard to bring reconciliation. They do so at a cost to themselves. It would have been hard for the, far, the, the shepherd to find that sheep that was lost. It was hard for the woman to find the coin that was lost. All of these finders call for a party when what they 
lost is found. That's one reason why Jesus told this parable. Jesus also told parables to tell us what God is like. And the father in this parable does all kinds of things that no first century patriarch would ever do in Palestine or anywhere else. A real father would never divide his inheritance while he was still living. A real father would never run through the town in such a shameful way. A real father would never give the family farm and property back to the son who spurned him and squandered his portion. Instead, a real father would sit in the house and would make his son grovel. A real father would be severe and harsh and even vindictive. A real father would never trust him again. Even if he eventually received him back, their relationship would always be broken. God calls himself in the Bible so many places our heavenly father. But he does all kinds of things as illustrated by this parable and and everything else that an earthly father would never do, doesn't he? And there's one more really important thing, and of course this is what it has to do with Christmas. When the father comes out of the house, I think the image changes. I think we get not God the father, but God the son. I think that Jesus is putting himself into the parable that he's the one who's accomplishing salvation. He's seeking and saving the lost, the tax collectors and the sinners. And that is happening in his audience at that very moment. And Jesus is the one who left the glory of heaven to enter our filthy world. And Jesus is the one who took the shame of the earthly community upon himself in order to save us from walking through that kind of shame and living in it. And the punishment that was awaiting the prodigal son never came. Instead, the son was offered radical, complete, and free forgiveness. He didn't have to work his way back into the family. He didn't have to earn his inheritance back. Who paid the cost for that? Who bore the loss and the suffering in himself? The father did. And I think the whole gospel message is here in this parable, and I think that's why Jesus is telling it, and that's why I love it. Because Jesus is telling us you can't really understand who God is if you don't see the incarnation. Among the many things that it's about, this parable is about the character of God. You can't understand who God really is without understanding what it was like for God to enter into our world. For God to leave his house and make reconciliation with his prodigal children. He's the one who's accomplishing the resurrection in our lives, right? He's finding the lost. He's making the dead alive again. This is what Jesus does that no one else could ever do. This is why this parable invites us to see the world in a very different way. We know the brokenness of our world. We know that it's very real. But the Bible holds out to us the very real promise of a solution that is behind and beyond all of that brokenness. This Christmas Eve, right, we see with eyes of faith that Jesus has invaded our world Because of love. Because of his compassion. 
Do you see it? I ask you tonight, or are you still like the prodigal in the far country? Are you thinking that the best that life has to offer is found in a life apart from God? Are you squandering the gift of your life? It's a gift. It's your inheritance from God. Are you squandering it? Are you wasting it on what you want and on yourself? If you're coming to your senses, do you think that a stern and punishing father awaits you? Is that who God is to you? Does he have a long list of rules and demands? Or do you see that Jesus is running towards you? That he's ready to forgive you and heal you with no strings attached? Jesus began that compassionate run towards us in the most amazing event in becoming one of us being born into our humanity, taking our flesh upon himself. And tonight, that's our reason to celebrate with great joy, isn't it? We have to celebrate. It's fitting that we celebrate. Christmas isn't big enough to celebrate this truth, is it? I mean, even though it starts before Thanksgiving, right? It's not big enough to celebrate what an amazing thing Jesus has done and coming into our world. And with him, he's brought healing. He's begun the healing of our world. That he's accomplishing the mending of our lives. Slowly, not completely yet. But he's doing it. For all who believe in him. The story, in, the story of the first son ends with a feast. And tonight we also have a feast that's laid out for us. This feast is a foretaste of what the Bible says is coming. In heaven we see pictures of a feast, of what's waiting for us. And this feast is offered joyfully, but at the cost of the Son. Body and blood broken and shed for the, forg- for the forgiveness of sin and for the healing of of the world. That sun came into our world this night. What a thing we have to celebrate. What an amazing reconciliation he has accomplished. We see it with eyes of faith right now. One day we will see it with eyes of sight. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And Jesus, we thank you for this story. It's so profound. We've just scratched the surface of understanding what it means that you are so different from the way our world works. That you have accomplished something that no one could do. That you've done the thing that no one would do for anyone else. You've done it for us while we were your enemies. And we thank you for that. Help us to celebrate that in its deepness. And call us and draw us closer to yourself. If we're in a far country, Father, speak to us. And that we would turn and walk back towards home. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.